0: So this morning, we are completing a four-part series on what it means to be the church. Next week, I plan on starting the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be there for about four or five months. So buckle up, it's going to be good. We started this church series, though, four weeks ago. We focused first on the church's one body, Ephesians 4, then the church is a Eucharistic fellowship, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, I mean 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Next, we looked at the church as a holy priesthood, 1 Peter 2, and now, this morning, we're talking about true worship. What does it mean to be a worship community? What is true worship? Hebrews 12 and 13. And the reason why we're discussing these matters is because the events of recent months, I think, have raised a lot of challenging questions about what it means to be the church what it looks like to live and to speak and to worship faithfully as the people of God, especially in this season. And so I felt like maybe it'd be a good idea for us to listen afresh to scripture on these matters. And one of the things that Jesus brings up in a very interesting way in our gospel reading in John chapter 4, is he says the hour is coming, but he then says it is now here. It is here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then he says, "For because the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So the question I want to pose this morning is, what does true worship look like? What does it look like to be a worshiping people, especially when our familiar ways of gathering have been intercepted and interrupted in this season? And I think Hebrews 12 and 13 actually give us a really kind of surprising and and down-to-earth and nitty-gritty answer to this question that I think sometimes goes overlooked in in our churches, and there's so many things that could be said about it, but I I just kind of want to limit myself to three observations about our Hebrews text as it unpacks the true nature of Christian worship. And the first observation is that worship embraces all of life. All of life is worship. In the book of Hebrews, there's this sense that just as the gospel of Jesus Christ embraces every aspect of life, so also a grateful life of uh, a life of gratitude in response to the gospel must also embrace every aspect of life. Andrew Peterson, um, somebody who wrote uh, a recent lament um, for everything that's been going on in our world lately, he's, he's a wonderful musician. He wrote this He said, There's no corner of creation that is safe from Christ's salvation. And so there is no aspect of life that is safe from worship. The author of the Hebrews makes this point in a really interesting way. He forms what you can call a sandwich or an inclusio or a bookend. He says the same statement at the beginning and end of our passage, and then he puts a bunch of things in the middle of the two pieces of bread, in other words, to form a sandwich. And when that happens in scripture, what you're intended to do is read what's put in the middle in light of the two statements on the outside. And so the two statements on the outside are couched in the language of worship. Verses 28 and 29 at the beginning of our reading. Therefore, he says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. image of consuming fire references back to Exodus and to Deuteronomy. It's saying our God, the God that we meet in Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is that same holy and loving God that we meet in the Old Testament. No distinction. The same God just come to us in human flesh. And so let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And then at the end of our passage in verse, 15, uh, in verse 15, we get him saying, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. So at the beginning and the end, we get, let us offer to God worship. And then right in the middle, the author of the Hebrews unpacks for us what it looks like to worship God in such a way that is acceptable and honoring and worthy of praise to him. And this is what he says. Chapter 13 verse 1. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so some people have actually shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Verse 3. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were in prison with them, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering with them. Verse 4. Marriage should be held in honor by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Verse 5. Keep your lives free from love of money. Be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. See, I don't know about you, but that's not the description of worship that I expected at the end of this marvelous letter to the Hebrews. I expected something much more grand, something that seemed much more liturgically elaborate, something that seemed to have sacrifices and offerings and incense and robes, something that would seem a lot more pleasing to the Lord of glory who is a consuming fire. But no. What worship looks like, according to Hebrews chapter 13, is this really ordinary, domestic, familial, relational, nitty-gritty, everyday life stuff. That's worship in the kingdom of God. See, I think it's quite amazing the picture that Hebrews actually gives us. <laughs> it's, it's saying you can't think of worship as just like a Sunday morning thing. You gather together, you worship, and then you leave, and you can't wait to get together to worship again. According to this passage, it's saying you have to think of literally all, 24-7, your whole entire life is one great liturgy of praise and thanksgiving to God for all that he has given you. So Monday is a day of worship. Tuesday is a day of worship. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, days of worship. And then Sunday morning is a unique moment of worship, but it is only the culmination of all the worship that has happened before According to British New Testament scholar Larry Hurtaldo, he says that this understanding of worship was actually a central component of early Christian distinctiveness in the Roman world. I would suggest it should be for us as well. He, He writes this. It's really fascinating. He says the early Christian emphasis on and teaching about everyday behavior as central to christian commitment is yet another distinctive feature that had profound impact upon subsequent generations he goes on to say that in the roman world and often in many places throughout history what we call religion has tended to focus on honoring and appeasing and trying to get the favor of the gods so that they'll treat us nicely and won't be angry towards us but here he says religion involves how we behave towards others worship involves how we conduct family and business matters and discipleship is very much about the formation of personal character and so what we're seeing in hebrews chapter three is that all of life Lived under the lordship of Jesus Christ is an act of worship, and so that everyday behavior and everyday ordinary stuff is central to what it means to praise God. And it seems to me that this is, this is both an encouraging and a challenging word for us as a church in this season, encouraging because we're in the midst of a season where we have not physically gathered for Sunday worship service uh, in a non-virtual way <laughs> for quite some months now. And I think it's encouraging to know, according to the author of the Hebrews, that that doesn't mean that we've stopped worshiping. Actually, in a sense, I think this season has invited us to realize just how deep and all-encompassing and expansive and wide worship, according to the New Testament, actually is. It's not something we can compartmentalize. It's not something we can stick in an individual surface. It's something that touches every aspect of our lives. And so I think the encouraging bit about this passage is that it it tells us that precisely the stuff we are doing in this season when we cannot physically gather is still worship, central to Christian commitment and the Christian life. But I think the challenging bit about this passage for us in the season is that the ordinary stuff of daily life is precisely the hardest place to worship. It's the hardest place to worship. I don't know if you've heard of Anne Voskamp before. She's kind of built quite uh, a big empire of Christian literature and, <laughs> and other things. But her original book, One Thousand Gifts, is, is actually quite brilliant. and. I'll never forget reading the beginning of chapter four, which is entitled, A Sanctuary of Time. And she begins that chapter by reflecting upon washing dishes. Just beautiful poetic language, listen to what she says. She says, April sun pools in dish water sink, liquid daylight on hands. The water is hot, I wash dishes. On my arms, just below my hiked sleeves, suds leave delicate watermarks, sun glistens. Soaking pots, soap bubbles slack. Light impinges on slippery film of the soap. And then she goes on to describe, as she's washing dishes, how she sees these soap bubbles. And she realizes that they're these, they're like millions of arched cathedrals of luminescent color. There's purple and there's gray and there's magenta and there's green. And she goes on to describe basically how she has this kind of revelatory moment of of God's light and his goodness very present to her in the midst of the most ordinary and kind of gritty and hands-on task of washing dishes. But then she goes on to describe that when she's done, she walks through her family room. (laughs) And as she walks through her family room, she sees kids' toys everywhere. She sees books strewn all over the place. She sees writing on the wall, and she sees, like, porridge from morning breakfast stuck on the couch. And she sees all the messiness of life. And she thinks to herself, man, what does it look like to attend to God in the midst of this mess? What does it look like to worship in the midst of pots and pans and toys and dirty couches? And see, brothers and sisters, I think that's the challenging question that so many of us are being faced with in this season. If worship embraces all of life, then thank the Lord what we do day to day is worship. But that's also hardest place to worship. And yet that's exactly where God is inviting us to be. Offer a sacrifice of praise today as you wash dishes. (laughs) Offer a sacrifice of praise as you wash your child's dirty face. Offer a sacrifice of praise as you wash the car. Worship embraces all of life. That's the first thing that I see in our passage. And the second thing is that worship is embodied. Bodies worship. Like what you do with your body is worship, whether it's public or private. Worship is not just a heart, it's not just a spiritual matter, according to Hebrews, although it is that too, but it is a body thing too. See, the book of Hebrews, if you kind of read it, it assumes that humans relate to God through bodies and through blood. In other words, Old Testament sacrificial system is all over the place. And we see this in verses 11 and 12 of our reading. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. So it's bodies and it's blood. And he says, and so Jesus did the same thing. So Jesus also suffered bodily outside the city gate to make the people holy, to sanctify them, to set them apart as his own through his own blood. See, Hebrews assumes that the way that human beings relate to God is through bodies and through blood. And for Christians, it's through a body, and his blood. And Hebrews also assumes that our appropriate response to Jesus' body and blood, his, Im- his embodied sacrificial grace, is an embodied act of worship. I mean, think of Paul's words here at the beginning of Romans chapter 12. He's just spent 11 chapters talking about the glory and the magnificence of God's grace as it is unleashed on a sinful and rebellious world. And then he turns the quarter and he says, how should you respond to all the marvels and wonders of his grace? Chapter 12, verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's the language of worship. Present your bodies, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And we see this kind of played out in two different verses in our passage in Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 3 is the first one. It says, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Now, if if you look at the Greek, you could actually literally translate that last phrase as if phrase, as if you yourselves were suffering, it could easily be translated, since you yourselves are also in the body. It's in somati, in the body, in a bodily way in the Greek. And so in this verse right here, it's it's saying empathize with those that are being mistreated, empathize with those that are being locked up in prison and experiencing isolation there and, and the difficulties of life in that place. Because you yourself know what it's like to be in the body and experience isolation or to experience mistreatment or to experience pain and suffering. So bodies somehow become central to worship as an act of empathy with those that are mistreated. The bodily image remains central as we go on to verse 4 as well. Marriage should be honored by all, for says verse 4, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. In other words, he's saying, sexual responsibility affirms the lordship of God, the creator, over the sphere of the body, like a bodily act of restraint and a bodily act of living within particular boundaries that are important to personal and relational fidelity is an act of worship to the Lord. So it's so amazing to me here. It's not just that all of life is worship, but he's saying what you do with your body is also worship. Whether it's public solidarity with the mistreated, like social justice matters, or whether it's private solidarity to your spouse, private family matters. Worship is about using your body for the sake of other people, just as Jesus used his body for your sake and your salvation and sometimes this will mean empathy with those that are hurting and sometimes that this will mean restraint for the sake of fidelity you see i think this is so important how we use our bodies according to this passage is an act of worship and so whenever we think that just it's it's my body and i just do whatever i want with it it's my freedom of choice my body my choice that actually runs counter to the view of Christian worship. It is my body, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, a pleasing act of worship, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving for all that he has done. So not only is all of life worship, but what we do with our bodies in this season is intended to be worship. And the third and final thing is that worship transforms fear and greed. And if I can think of two things that are pretty big in the cultural air at this moment, it's it's fear (laughs) about where we're heading and what's going to happen in the midst of pandemic, in the midst of social unrest, in the midst of economic fallout, in the midst of personal hardship, all these things like fear about what's going on and what's going to happen. And then sometimes when there's fear, greed can slip in, that we we need to hold on to what we have, or we need to get more because there's not going to be enough. And worship transforms both fear and greed. Verse 1, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. See, fear, perfect love casts out fear according to the Bible. And I'm amazed by this familial image language here. It's saying, love one another as brothers and sisters. Don't be afraid of each other. Don't see each other as competitive. Don't see each other as threats to your own personal identity and agendas. See each other as brother and sister, part of the family of God. And when you see each other that way, then the way to relate to one another is not out of fear. It's out of love. I remember this growing up. My mother was very loving and very strict at the same time <laughs> in the way that she disciplined us. And I remember my mom would get, she, she would definitely discipline us for not listening to her. But the time when my mom would get the most ardently angry with us is whenever my brother and sister and I disappointed, whenever we hurt one another. So if we could, we could not listen to mom. We could do something wrong. We could break something and there'd be consequences for it. But the second we spoke or acted in a way that was unkind to our brothers and sisters, then mama bear came out. <laughs> and, and it was a phenomenal thing to behold. And it was scary. But the point was communicated to me really early in my life, how you treat your brother and sister is one of the most important things about your life. No matter what happens, no matter what you're going through, you stick with your brother and sister and you love them. And it's amazing to me how the passage goes on to unpack what this love replacing fear in the way that we relate to each other actually looks like. In verse 2. The fear of the stranger or foreigner becomes loving hospitality to the stranger and foreigner. The word here is is love of the stranger, and and the stranger word is the same Greek root word from which we get xenophobia. And so the author here is saying that actually when you are gripped by the gospel of grace and your whole life is an act of worship, you you don't fear the foreigner anymore as if they're a threat to you. No, you seek to offer loving hospitality to them, to serve them, to care for their needs. And then verse three, he says, the fear of the prisoner becomes loving consideration of their suffering. I mean, think about this. I was really struck by this this last week as I was reading this verse. I was like, how many times do I think about the prisoner? Or in our country, they, they call them the criminal, they label them the criminal. And here, fear of the prisoner becomes loving consideration of their suffering, to the point of actually having solidarity with them and seeking to meet their needs. And then in verse three, fear of harm becomes loving solidarity with the one who is mistreated. And I think it's really wonderful that we're actually looking at these verses on Fourth of July weekend, <laughs> where we're kind of celebrating the birth of our nation because they resonate with something that I think was at the heart, the early heartbeat of our nation at the very least. Something that's etched into a plaque at the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty, a poem written by Emma Lazarus on November 2nd, 1883. And it reads like this. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name mother of exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, she cries. With silent lips, give me your tired and your poor. Your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. See, I think that poem, which is etched into the bottom of the Statue of Liberty, is something that reflects the nature of worship, according to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And whenever we live in a society as the Church of Jesus Christ that is attempted to adopt a motto that it's every person for him or herself, then we as the Church of Jesus Christ must gently and patiently and graciously and humbly go about the business of what we have always been about, not neglecting the foreigner, remembering the prisoner and caring for the mistreated and the hurting, Because this is what it means to offer acceptable worship to the Lord, our God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice here how in the Bible, there's kind of no division between what we would consider public kind of social justice ways of worshiping and more private domestic life family ways of worshiping. In the Bible, there is no crazy distinction between public and private between social and personal. And so in verse 4, the author goes on to talk about how in the sphere of grace, greed is transformed into trust. Greed for sexual satisfaction in verse 4 becomes trusting fidelity to God's good order and judgment for families and for marriages. And then verse 5, greed for financial gain and security becomes trusting contentment and what God has already provided for you, knowing that he's never going to leave you and forsake you. So the image that we get here is that like, worship embraces all of life. Worship involves our bodies. And then worship involves like how we relate to people in the public social sphere, and how we relate to our husband and our spouse and our wife and our bank accounts in private. All of life is worship. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, I want to say to you in the season when we're not physically gathering that you have not ceased worshiping. We have not ceased worshiping. In a sense, God has invited us to the hardest place to worship, which is the day-to-day stuff of ordinary life. And so, I wonder, I wonder with you, how is it that the Spirit of God is inviting you and me to worship. Where in our lives? What tasks and and what jobs and what relationships and what difficult situations and what, like where in our lives have we resisted worshiping? Maybe the spirit of God is inviting us to enter into and cultivate hearts and minds and bodies of praise. My brothers and sisters, I speak these things, knowing that Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever, and that he loves you, and that he cares for you deeply in these days. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.